Welcome back to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast. Joel and I have been working on getting some new material together so that uh, you'll hopefully find it provocative, provocative enough to really get you thinking, but not the kind of provocative that makes you hate us, even if we deserve it. Today we are starting a series that will focus quite a lot on Plato. Uh, you might not think that from this episode, though. In fact, if you're a Christian, you might think this episode sounds like a couple of former Christians doing what they can to make the Bible sound silly or useless. That is not our intention at all. In fact, the goal is to try to show not that the Bible is some mess of a text, but that we tend to approach it badly. And we're not saying that the lay person is bad at reading the Bible while educated academics are good at reading the Bible. We're talking some, about something a little bit deeper, uh, maybe in our hearts and minds. We sort of sloppily try to talk through this. We hope you'll listen and see if what we're saying rings true. Our goal in this and the following podcast is ultimately to talk about how learning to read Plato might help us learn to read the Bible better. If you have any thoughts, questions, complaints, let us know. You can email us at wondering, with, wondering at tacticalfaith.com, and that's wondering with an underscore where the O or the A would be. Or you can message us, message us on Twitter at wonderingwisdom, again, where the O or the A would be in wondering, there's an underscore. Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the TF Podcast Network. Check out our site, tacticalfaith.com, to find blogs, ways to contact us, and our other podcast, TF Radio, which features great interviews and discussions with some brilliant people in the world of Christian thought and ministry. Tactical Faith is a 501c3 dedicated to bringing the life of the mind to the church and to encourage faith and wisdom. All of us here are volunteers. If you'd like to support us, please check out the site, tacticalfaith.com, and look for the donate button. Enjoy. Welcome back to Wandering Toward Wisdom. Uh, we're, we've taken the month off, and we're back with topics to discuss. And uh, we thought we'd ease back in uh, with a uh, simple, uncontroversial topic, and that is, how do we read the Bible? I mean, if, if you're like me, and maybe you guys are all better people than I am, which is entirely possible. But there are certain parts of the Bible that I read and I'm just like, oh, I think it's time to skim. And by skim, I mean, I'm going to read about five or six words on each page and get on to the next part, you know, especially in you know Leviticus. But, you know, even sometimes, you know, in the in, when we get to the New Testament, it's kind of like, I'm not exactly sure what Paul's saying here, and um, I I at least don't want to pick and choose something that just makes me feel good about myself. And so I, you know, I'm I'm aware no enough to not do that. And so I'm just going to read it and not really know what's going on, and and just not make much of an effort. Or if you're like me and you went and have some education in Bible you pull out the commentaries or you pull out the Greek because it feels like that's what I'm supposed to do when I'm not sure what, what's going on. And sometimes you read a commentary and you're like, I know you're supposed to be really smart. I know you've supposedly done a lot of education, but I have no idea how you're getting that idea out of what I'm seeing on the page. And so, um, and then we could even get into all the different translations and all the ways that uh, certain verses are interpreted, and it can it can start to feel like is the Bible. I know I'm supposed to read the Bible, but is the Bible worth reading, or or how do we read it so that it's worth reading, or what what's going on in the Bible so that maybe if we understand that we can read it better. And uh, in a in a vein of, of episodes that we're going to be doing, um, we've done and we're going to keep doing, is we're going to look at some philosophy and look at a philosopher and uh, see what they have to say about an idea that we can uh, help, that we can use to help us dig deeper into our faith. Um, today, we're going to return to Plato. Um, you know, as we've talked about, you know, Travis has this great deep love for Plato. Uh, he did, Plato's one of the major figures in his dissertation. Uh, I think if Travis had his way, 
we'd spend the rest of the year talking about Plato. But um, Amen. All, <laughs> all that to say, uh, we're gonna. Travis is gonna talk about some things that Plato has to say about communication, about human communication, about written communication, um, and what's the value of it? How does it work? And we're gonna see if we can take some of those ideas from Plato and help answer some of these questions about what do we do with the Bible. So. Um, like I said, we're, we're, we're keeping it pretty simple and, uh, uncontroversial to get back into the swing of things. So, um, you know, nothing, nothing like, like, like this dumping it, jumping in the deep end, but, um, Travis, let's talk about Plato. All right. Well, I hope you all picked up on all the sarcasm there. Uh, the, the question of how we read the Bible and interpret it is far from non-controversial, but so. Uh, and and Joel actually said a lot about what uh, what I want to try to get to because I think when people think about reading the Bible, generally speaking, we don't see it as a problem until we really start trying to dig into the Bible, and then we begin to realize that there's there's a whole bunch of issues that are going on here. But I think some of them we're so accustomed to that we don't even recognize that they're problems anymore. Uh, so, for example, um, and I'm just gonna I'll just spit it out and get you know. I was a pastor for a little while, so I'm, I'm just as guilty. But my guess is most of the sermons you listen to, most of the Sunday schools you go to are about at, about as remarkable as watching paint drying. And they have about the same amount of effect on your personal life. Um, there's not a lot of change. Uh, it seems unusual to see someone grow, uh, particularly through sermons or, or Sunday school lessons. And if you've ever had the misfortune of having a seminary student like I was teach your Sunday school class, then you understand the utter suffering and pain that it is when someone who is learning the Greek and uh, likes to fiddle around with commentaries like Joel talks about, and they come in throwing words out like hapax legomena, legomenon, and so on and so forth, and they're trying to tell you about a passage, and they seem like, this sounds like they're saying something really important, but you're like, I don't care. You know, I I work every day. I'm not, not going to read the Greek. I don't have time to do that. I don't understand what this has to do with me. And so you have, uh, but on the other hand, you also have, you know, the classic criticism of the normal Bible study, right? You read a passage, you're like, what does this mean to you? Well, who cares what it means to you? What matters is what it means, right? What it means to you is, you probably got it wrong. I mean, we're all pretty stupid and we didn't live in those days. And so we don't really know, I mean, what does a passage from Jeremiah 29 mean to me? Not the right thing. That's not what it means, right? Uh, maybe you've heard that some, Jeremiah 29. <laughs> When I was a pastor, this is one of the first things that plagued me was the recognition that, well, like what Joel was saying is that there are passages in the Bible. There are two kinds of passages in the Bible, those that we don't understand or seem to have no application to us whatsoever, and those that are so obvious that they don't need to be read, right? I feel like those are the only, those are the two kinds of passages in scripture. So my goal was always to try to make the Bible difficult for the students. And that sounds a little bit weird, but what I meant, what I mean was, and I didn't realize exactly what I was doing. I was actually engaging in some Socratic, Socratic dialogue before I even really studied Plato. Um, but I, I had had a bunch of students who'd gone to like private Christian schools and they'd grown up in the church and they already knew everything. And it was really troublesome. Like they weren't, they weren't, they didn't pay attention because they already knew everything. Uh, and they were in a church that prided itself on being intellectual. We'd have hour long, we'd have teaching hours, not sermons. And people could ask questions and you could really dig in because everyone you know, was really smart. So uh, we called ourselves the Brian Fellowship because, you know, we're more noble and we dig into the scriptures. That's, I, I love that church, by the way. Don't don't get me wrong. I sound like I'm ripping on it, but I love that church. I love my time there. Nevertheless, the uh, um, it's not called that anymore, so don't even try to look for it. It was, it was a lot of people who really did know their stuff. When, when I opened my scripture, when I open the Bible and I start start to talk about it, and as soon as and I've got past the jokes and the icebreaker games and the music, whatever, and I start to open the Bible, and suddenly everyone's like, "There's a problem, right?" They're like, "Okay, well, this is the boring part of the service." Mm -hmm. um, that is is a symptom of a problem. 
And so often what I would do is I'd go into, I was go, I'd go into a Sunday school class or youth group or whatever. And I would start, instead of teaching them something, all I would do is go there and ask questions. And it, I remember there's one time where it resulted in them yelling at me at the end of a, at the end of a class saying, tell us what the answer is. But it was a simple passage that everyone already knew all the answer to. But all I did was I just spent 20 minutes, 30 minutes asking questions. And I got to the point where they were desperately asking me for the answer. Unfortunately, I had to play it off a little bit, but I didn't know the answer because I wasn't prepared <laughs> to get an answer. I was just prepared. To, you know, I was very not First Peter three fifteen. Um, I was only prepared to give the questions, and so you know, and we worked it out. But the whole the whole thing was that it led to a kind of dialogue to try to work to try to find the answer. Um, but it led to, I think, more than that. It led to a, an increased sense, at least in me, hopefully in them as well, an increased sense of wonder at Scripture. That scripture is something that you a text that with which you can wrestle. It's not something you just hermeneutic and Greek parse it and Hebrew parse it to death and Aramaic if you're you know getting into Daniel and you want to be fancy. Um, but uh, it's it's something that it's it's a text that is constant which we're called in called to wrestle with. But what exactly does that mean? And does it mean you have to be some sort of academic? Does it mean you have to reject academics? Um, well, that's where I want to get into Phaed- the Phaedrus. Uh, the Phaedrus is a great, one of the great things about the Phaedrus is a dialogue by Plato is that he spends a whole bunch of time having Socrates criticize the writing, criticize writing, particularly writing of speeches, which by the way, the Phaedrus is full is the Phaedrus has Socrates and Phaedrus both giving speeches. So Plato just wrote speech. He just wrote down speeches <laughs> and then he writes a story. He writes the continuation of the conversation where Socrates criticizes the writing of speeches and criticizes writing itself as something that destroys our capacity, not only for memory, which that already sounds strange, but our capacity for wisdom and turns us into a bunch of insufferable jerks. He actually, wow. said that, though that's not precisely what he says, but it's, it's essentially what he says. And this became this became interesting uh, interesting to me because it, it starts to relate to the way that we think about the interpretation of the Bible, uh, which sounds weird. What I'm trying to say is something like this: what we learn from Plato about reading Plato can help us think about how to read the Bible. Now, again, we're not biblical scholars; we have some training in this. You know, I've been to seminary, and Joel read part of the Bible once. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, but it, you know, he's got, he's got undergraduate training in it. Uh, and I've, I've got a couple master's degrees in it, but I'm not a scholar. Um, I'm not a biblical scholar by any means, but there's something about the way. And, and so we're not going to get into details about different genres and all that kind of stuff. We're not going to talk about that. Um, but I want to talk about just generally speaking, how should we approach the Bible? Cause the Bible is a strange book. So let me mention some of the strange things about the Bible and stuff you already know. It was written over the course of a few thousand years, right? So this isn't a single culture that is presenting it. This is a, tr- a culture that's transforming. It's in different areas of the world. It's written by a huge collections of a huge collection of different people. It's not written by a single person, obviously. Um, and he- here's probably the strangest part. We believe the Bible to be inspired by God, but we do not believe the Bible to have been written by God. At least that's standard Christian view. There's, I think we tend to we tend to slip into one side or the other. Uh, we te- we believe it was inspired by God, but written by human beings. So God inspired human beings who wrote it. So they wrote it in their own language, in their own culture, probably with some of their own idi- idiosyncrasies, with their own maybe favored way of writing, whether it be poetic and so on and so forth. Um, and this has led to a wide, widely divergent views on how to interpret the Bible, but. Here's, here's, here's what that means when you say the Bible's inspired. It means it's not merely a human work, but it's also not the Quran, right? I mean, obviously it's not the Quran, but if you know anything about Islam, Muslims believe that the, that the Quran, I mean, the Quran literally means recitation. And so it's, it's meant to be Muhammad reciting a book that was written by Allah. So the book is perfect, right? Right. Do we believe the Bible to be perfect? A long pause there, right? Well, uh, so what, <laughs> what do we what mean? Do we by mean? By, yeah, what do we mean yeah, by I mean, 
we want to say that it's that it is without error. We we usually say something like it is uh, authoritative in the original manuscripts or something like that. There's a bunch of qualifications about it, right? So because we don't have the original manuscripts, it's possible that we have a word off here and there, and that could maybe change. I mean, the the change in meaning on the different manuscripts, given the evidence we have, is minimal and nothing. There's nothing dramatic that's central to the faith at all, um, despite what some people will try to say. Uh, if you know anything about biblical scholarship, you know that that's not the case. We say something like it's authoritative in the original manuscripts, authoritative in, in all matters pertaining to life or pertaining to uh, matters of faith and practice, we might say. Um, there's some some doctrinal statements, statements like that. We say it's we say it's without error. We say it's what's some of the language that we use to describe the Bible that we have all these debates over. Uh, plenary inspiration. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's all these different terms and what we're trying to get at is something like this. The Bible is really important and it serves as the standard, right? Some people call it the canon and we don't mean by that something with which you shoot your enemies, despite how Christians often use it. Um, <laughs> it's canon is with one end. Well, it's with two ends, not three. And it literally, and it means the measure. So there's something about scripture where it stands as the measure against which all of our faith and practice should be, should be should be tested, right? It's a standard. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was called in, 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 in those days, but it's, it's, or when it was put together, but what are we, how do we interpret it? And again, I'm not, I'm not going to get into all the debates about hermeneutics, but I, w- I want to say, I want to say something like this. And this is really obvious. And this is sort of the, the heart of what we're trying to get at. The Bible is not, yeah, let me make one more point so I can get to this. We seem to think that the standard, we, we we Christians, I think, have bought into the view inadvertently, even though we recognize the common person doesn't think this, that we, we've bought into the view that that the highest level of thought is the establishment of a system of beliefs. And so the real work in Christianity is the the real intellectual work is the formation of a systematic theology perhaps something like that. Right. You could what, do, what do you, what do you mean by systematic theology? Okay. Well, let's, so we have to, we, we tend to distinguish systematic theology from biblical theology. So biblical theology is attempting to try to interpret scripture and find the theology. And systematic theology puts everything together in a nice structure. So everything kind of fits. Right. So we have a doctrine. We have, you know, even if you look at the Nicene Creed, it's split into three parts, right. To go with the Trinity and you can look at those parts in a systematic. So you have stuff on God, the father, you know, God, the creator of heaven and earth. We have the son and we have the spirit and the church and everything else with the spirit. Um, and if we create a systematic theology, what we do is maybe go through the doctrine of. And this is how a lot of systematic theologies are set up. Doctrine of creation, the doctrine of God, the father, the creator, so on and so forth. And then we get the doctrine of salvation. So you got to talk about sin, uh, Jesus, Jesus's work, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, and how that all functions. And then we go to the doctrine of the church and sanctification and eschatology is usually what, what comes in at the end. And so, um, it, what, so just to help our listeners, would it be, would one way that you could think of it be that a systematic theology is kind of a synopsis of the big ideas of the Bible so that when we go to read the Bible, we know what to look for, how to understand certain ideas, whereas biblical theology is trying to mine those out of the passage and trying to string them together into a coherent whole. Yeah, well, I think in some ways, systematic theology is what you come up with when you've put everything together into a nice, well, system that that all fits together, right? So a, a system of beliefs is one that that doesn't have oddities, doesn't have things that it doesn't. It tries to get rid of all the loose ends as much as possible, right? A system of theology, a systematic theology, has has tried to rid itself of the loose ends by getting the system all nice and neat and everything tidied up. Biblical theology tends to be a little messier. It's like it's like the initial stages. So I think biblical theology is sort of like, uh, you know, maybe it could be. I don't know. Think of an archaeologist going out and digging through stuff. 
and they're getting dirty and dusty and they're finding this and they're finding that and they have to try to establish kind of what's going on here. But the person who does the history, they take all the all the work that the archaeologists have done as well as other accounts and so on and so forth and they bring in they bring it together and create a nice systematized account of what took place. And so I think systematic theology is something like that. And that's why if you're if you're doing systematic theology, and in fact, most of our debates are, are like the Calvinist Arminian debate. That's, those are two systems of beliefs that kind of try to tie up all the loose ends. Right. And so there's no, you know, if, if God has foreknowledge, then there is no such thing really as free will. I mean, you could say this free will in the compatibilist sense, but it's not really free will. And so. And that, that ties up all the problems of if God doesn't know what's going on, then how can he guarantee that his will is completed and how can he know what's going on? You know, all this kind of, there's all this kind of stuff that, that, that happens. Anyway, there's always an attempt to, to try to get rid of those un- uncomfortable parts. So a system kind of cleans everything up. Biblical, biblical theology is kind of the front lines digging through the dirt, trying to figure out what's going on. And if I'm trying to do a theology, a biblical theology, sometimes I do like a theology of Matthew or a theology of the Gospels or a theology of the Pentateuch or right something like that, where you're kind of you're more in the in the details, so you have a harder time getting to the the full system and make sure it all wraps up. Um, but the the point is, we sent we tend to think that once you get your ideas into a perfect system where all the loose ends are tied up, that's a good place to be. It's comfortable. There's no there's no problems. There's there's nothing left out. Uh, the the issue is, and this is where I think we should all agree, is that the Bible is God's revelation of Himself to us, and God is personal. God is not a system of laws, uh, and one doesn't connect with God simply by having the right beliefs. Unless you understand belief in the rich sense of faith, which simply, which does not mean simply the assertion that something is true based on no evidence or very little evidence. That's not what faith faith is trusting, which is a different sort of thing. It's much richer than the idea of just belief that some proposition is true. Even the demons believe in shudder, right? Um, and so the scripture is calling us into this. And the question is, how can how can a written word that seems to be written to people either to nobody or everybody kind of generally or written to a bunch of people way back then. How do we read it in such a way that we're encountering God rather than reading, reading it in such a way that we're encountering, that we're trying to move it into a systematic theology? And it's not the systematic theology is bad. It's only a little bit bad. Anyway, so... Um, uh, it's, it's, it, it isn't bad. The intellectual side of, I mean, we, we recognize this is another problem interpreting scripture. Like the joke is that people don't go to seminary. They go to cemetery and seminary is where you, it's where you go for your relationship with God to die. And there's the, I mean, if you go to seminary, it's not necessarily true, but it can be. And it's not that the intellectual opposes the relationship with God. It's that the intellectual can crowd it out by filling. It's just like that when I talked about the seminary student teaching the class, right? They they've been to, they've been trained into think, thinking a certain set of things are important because they help you interpret scripture, and they are important to a certain extent, but they're not important to the average person. The average person is just trying to is trying to, well, to be honest, I would say the average person is trying to engage with God, but I think the average person is trying to do their duty, get the practical steps on what they're supposed to do. Oh, I'm not supposed to steal, kill, and destroy. All right, well, I've not been doing that anyway. And so, and then they go back into their everyday life and feel comfortable with the fact that they went to church and did their duty. But if someone truly comes as a believer and is trying to engage with God, oftentimes the intellectual stuff gets in the way. Now, it's not that the seminary student shouldn't be using that stuff. It's that you need to quit flexing and showing off. You don't need to tell them everything. And I say this as one who is still guilty of this, right? Uh, even though I'm not a seminary student. I mean, we have we have a podcast where we talk about the things that we studied and... Shut up, Joel. <laughs> um, so... I mean, this is this is a lot of intro, and maybe some of this is just obvious. I'm trying I'm trying to express. Joel and I are both trying to express sort of an obvious issue that we have a scripture. Uh, we use it all the time, and we feel perfectly comfortable with scripture, and it doesn't mean anything to us at the same time. You know, we read the stories, and they're kind of cute and nice. You know, Noah has these happy animals going on to his happy boat while they happily go off, and everyone's happily, you know, God's committing a happy genocide, and everyone's drowning and dying monstrous deaths. 
we went to go see the arc that Ken Ham's arc thing, which uh, mm-hmm. my dad really wanted to see it. It was actually really neat. And it was the kind of thought they put into how these people might've survived on an arc was really, really interesting, but they had a whole section dedicated to how, how, I don't know exactly how it was put, but it was put in pretty negative terms. How, how the cutesy diversion of Noah's Ark was somehow corrupting our children. It wasn't a, this isn't how it was. And there's a point where I, I don't know if I agree with what he's trying to get at, but, but I agree that the, the Noah's Ark story is one of the greatest examples of how we've domesticated the Bible. And I remember my, my wife came to me one time and said, our daughter, who was like four or five, our oldest, she's really smart. But she said, but she was reading the story of Noah's Ark to her and, and, and it was out of a kid's storybook. And my daughter said, so, so all those other people are under the water. And my wife closed the book and said, all right, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, they were. And that's the whole point is, is it's a story of judgment and redemption and salvation, but of also tremendous evil and not evil on God's side, even though, I mean, there's some people who say that, but the, the tremendous evil of the world and the need to, re, you know, it's there, and there's, there's a whole bunch of other themes in there, but we've, we've domesticated and made it kind of a, well, you know, God saved, God saved people. That's nice. God is so nice. Well, what about all the other people? Right. And I'm not saying that the conclusion here is that God's bad or the flood didn't happen. Right. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we, if we don't wrestle with this, we're not approaching the text, right? Right. Um, we're not approaching the text correctly. So one of the other issues is domestication. And we're, we're, we're not struck by the odd, by how odd the Bible is. And I don't mean odd in a bad way. I mean, it's odd. It, it, sh- it should be shaking us up all the time. We should always be kind of struck with it. And I, fi- I find that so many times when I'm reading the Bible, or I'm doing Bible studies in my family, so on and so forth, I'm always, str- I'm just struck by what's going on in the Bible. In fact, when I used to prepare sermons and stuff, I would go and sit there and I would read the passage and I'd be like, I'm not being struck by anything. So I'm not reading it right. I'm not reading this correctly. Now, I don't know if that's a good way of going about it, but I, so I would, I would wrestle. I would, I would dig into the, the languages. I would read through commentaries and then boom, I would be like, you know, after reflecting on it for a few days and studying, I would start to be struck by something. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I think I'm starting to get, I think I'm starting to understand this passage that everyone's read a thousand times. It's been fully domesticated. Somebody probably has it on their fridge somewhere, you know, and I would start to be, shaken by it. And I was like, it was like, I wasn't just engaging the scripture. It's like at a point I was engaging the one who inspired it. Right. Which I know that's what we're aiming for. Right. The point is the scriptures are written by a whole bunch of different people over a few thousand years in different languages, in different cultures with different backgrounds, but it's all revealing to us the person of God the three persons of God, right? A specific God, God the Father is revealing himself to us, most notably in Christ and through the Holy Spirit, right? And so when we read scripture, that's what we need to be doing. So what does that mean? And what does Plato have to do with that? So how would Plato- I hope you're going to tell us that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what I want to try to do, so that's that's the background of the some of the problems- with the Bible, if you want to call it that, problems with the Bible, um, problems with reading it, problems with interpreting it, problems with the anemic way in which we present it, and the, it feels like the general ineffectiveness of Scripture. Um, and it's, I think it's why so many atheists and so on and so forth think the Scripture is just silly because they're reading it just like we read it, <laughs> except it's not been domesticated for them. And so, uh. Well, so let's uh, let, let me talk a little bit about what's going on in the Phaedrus. So the Phaedrus is a is a well, there's a there's a bunch of things going on in it. But let me talk a little bit about this this bit, um, and maybe we can we can start here. This might end up being a couple episodes. I don't know if we're going to get through this. Um, if you're listening, you might be you might be in despair, but you can always just turn it off. So um, or or speed it up. That's another way or to speed it up. Yeah, put it on four <laughs> times speed, or just listen to the just skip over the parts where I'm talking. So, <laughs> so here's a, in the conversation Socrates is having with Phaedrus, they're talking about a variety of issues. And 
a lot of it, I mean, it has to do with speeches, namely, specifically, but it also has to do with uh, Eros um, and uh, and how that relates to the pursuit of philosophy. We're not just the, not how philosophy is the engagement of Eros in the pursuit of the beautiful and the good with capital B, capital G, um, which is a theme in Plato a lot. Uh, but part of the issue, one of the elements in Plato is that the beautiful or the good is not something that you, that you can say, just like I can't, how do I say, I can't collect God into a proposition, into a statement. In fact, I can't collect any person into a statement because persons are more than any proposition, any more than a word, more than a statement. Uh, I mean, this is so obvious that to say it is like saying water is wet, right? It's uh, it's it's obvious. God is a well, person. It, it's something we affirm, but I think we are always drawn to try and capture people in a statement. Um, you know, we that we we all recognize that yeah, like a person is is bigger than anything you can say about them. Yet we are drawn to try to understand people in terms of statements to because the I think the concept of person is so huge that we we don't know how to do it except to try and fit people into some kind of box even if the boxes are really big and not the small boxes that we usually criticize people for doing yeah yeah and that's that's I mean uh people that we're really close to it's more difficult to put them in a box because they keep engaging with us right um People distant from us or big groups of people, we can put in boxes. We have a really hard time not putting them in boxes. And God is in that latter latter category. Now, is God close to us? Yes. But God is also not some physical. He doesn't slap you every time you say something wrong about him. Right. Um, uh, you know, if I'm if I'm talking a bunch of errors about my wife, she'll let me know. And and her life will will manifest the differences, at least when I'm paying attention well. So talking about God, um, talking about God uh, can, can become tricky, right? And systematic theology is doing a really great work while at the same time never getting to the point of Christianity, which is to know God. And to know God doesn't mean to know about God. It means to know God, right? Um, uh, in the rich way, though not exactly the same way, obviously, that Adam knew his wife and she became pregnant, right? It's this intimate drawing together. So um, so uh, the problem, what is the, how, how can words, which tend to get in the way and actually become er- erroneous if we emphasize them too much, how can words get us to see those things which are beyond what words can say, right? Um, you know, the song, More Than Words. Great song, stupid song. That's not. <laughs> um, I mean, well, I'm just assuming bad motives in the guy. Fair enough. It sounds like he's saying, "Quit saying you love me and have sex with me to prove it." Maybe he means get me flowers. Or maybe, maybe I need. Maybe he need, he's saying I just need to to see it more than than in words. I need you to to do uh to be a be engaged in the relationship beyond your words you're giving him too much benefit of the doubt okay um <laughs> i have a cynical view of people uh or maybe realistic i don't know which one it is okay so that's probably gonna get cut <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe well we'll see uh okay so um we've got uh we've got socrates trying to talk about uh Really, what he's trying to talk about is how do, how do you how do you teach philosophy, and and specifically, if philosophy is is a way of doing things, not just a way, it's a passionate pursuit of the good and the beautiful. How do you teach it, right? And this is something that Joel and I both have a lot, a lot in you know. This is something that's really concerned us is, is teaching, um, the nature of teaching. And, you know, I've fiddled around and fa- failed in some respects and been successful in other ones. Um, but generally speaking, I, I, I test my own uh, ability to teach 
not in terms of necessarily how well the students get all the information, but how much they've come to love philosophy, um, which I think, I feel like that's perhaps perhaps more important. And so you can look at this or how much they become philosophers in the way that they, that they live their lives. They come, they come to love the pursuit of these, of these things. Um, right. And I think we could talk about, I mean, what, what is the sign of being a good Bible teacher or a good preacher? It's not that people praise you because you're eloquent or you're super astute and you just mastered the original languages. It seems to be something, wouldn't it be something like people are growing in their love of God and the sanctification that accompanies that? and their love of neighbor and the sanctification yep. that, that that is. Yeah. Right. It seems to me that those would be the tests. And when we read scripture, do we just feel better about ourselves because we've read it or we feel better about ourselves because we went and heard a sermon, we're doing our duty. Like, come, I mean, and I'm guilty of that as well. Right. To some extent, there's a, there's a duty. And that's not a bad, it's, it's a good thing to get you there. But if, we're, if there's not something about it, that's, that's driving you deeper. Um, but the thing is, like, there's a question of how are we even talking about that? Like, what is it about this about Scripture that leads us into a deeper relationship with God? Um, well, we learn about how much God loves us and all this other kind of stuff. But I think there's a little bit more than this, and and we see it in what Socrates is saying here. I think so. So he tells this story. He talks about uh, two gods, um, a god named Thamus, who was. Uh, the the king at the time, the king of Egypt, and this guy named Thuth, uh, which sounds like I'm saying Zeus, but I'm three years old. Um, but uh, Thuth was one who had a bunch of arts, and he came he came before Thamus and said this. He said, "I've discovered something," and so he says, "O king, here is something that once learned will make the Egyptians wiser and will improve their memory." I have discovered a potion for memory and for wisdom. And Thamus says, you know, I'll be the judge of that. Um, what was he talking about? Writing, right? The first information technology was the capacity to write. And why is writing a potion for memory? Well, that's obvious. You can write it down. You don't have to just remember it. Why is it a potion for wisdom? Well, because now we can collect them, right? If you got it. One of you know, if you could see behind me and beside me, you'd see a bunch of bookshelves full of books, which is a sign that I'm wise. Um, uh, that's that's a joke. If you knew me, you'd realize that's not true. So, um, but he said, uh, Thamus actually responds. He judges and he says, he says, since you're the father of writing, your affection for it has made you describe its effects as the opposite of what they really are. In fact, writing will introduce forgetfulness into the soul of those who learn it. They will not practice using their memory because they will put their trust in writing, which is external and depends on signs that belong to others instead of trying to remember from the inside completely on their own. You have not discovered a potion for remembering, but for reminding. Uh, you provide your students with the appearance of wisdom, not with its reality, which is interesting. Like, well, I mean, this sort of makes sense. And it's been proven that the more you, in fact, it's been shown that if you write, if you handwrite notes for a class, you're more likely to remember it in your head than if you type. Why? Because handwriting takes more time and you have to think more. You have to be more selective in the words you're using so that you're actually having to work it through your mind as you write it. Typing, you can almost just, the way we type nowadays, you can almost just type everything the, the, the teacher's saying. But why, why is writing undermining the capacity for memory? Well, because if you think about the way we remember things, what we're trying to usually remember is a solution to a problem or the answer to a question. And if you're going to remember, if you're going to remember it without the help of writing, you really need to remember the question well and how the answer fit into it, how it solves the problem. And if you do that, then you don't need to be reminded because as soon as you think of the problem, you understand how the answer fits there, how it brings a solution to this problem. And so when you're able to write, you almost stop forgetting how it solves the problem and just remember that it solves the problem. And so you lose the understanding of how everything relates and you start to have a fragmented set of reminders. If this doesn't describe our kind of situation now, 
I'm not sure what does. Like we are in, we are just swollen with facts and we don't know how to put them together. Right. And so as soon as, I mean, this is, I think this is, well, I shouldn't get into contemporary situations, but I think this is a lot of what drives so much of what we do in the Christian, uh, even among Christians, we're swollen with a set of facts, a bunch of information, but a bunch of chunks of information, but without the capacity to really know how they fit together. And this is why we can't even talk to each other very well. We're very bad at talking to each other because you don't know we haven't seen how things fit together. And so we can never get to the ground of it. We just realize that on this level of facts, we disagree and you're wrong and that makes you bad. And so dialogue is difficult or unimportant. And this is exactly what Thamu says. He goes, your invention will enable them to hear many things without being properly taught. And they will imagine that they have come to know much while for the most part, they will know nothing. And this is the best part because it's entirely accurate. And they will be difficult to get along with since they will merely appear to be wise instead of really being so. And so writing has this problem. And when we approach, so let me just throw it this way. When we approach scripture as a set of answers without recognizing the problem and without really recognizing the problem within ourselves, we become like this. We read it this way. But scripture, I don't think, is meant to give us a bunch of simple answers to, to problems that we have, but to cause us to understand how to wrestle our way to the one who has who is the answer, you might say. So, for example, let me give an example of this because it sounds, it sounds silly, uh, what I'm saying. If I go to someone and I'm trying to share the gospel with them, and the first thing I need to do when I'm sharing the gospel, if I'm going to make it good news, I need to make it clear that they're a sinner. So I start using the word sin. Well, sin has a has a weird background and understanding now. And if I start talking about sin, someone's going to be like, you know, I, I've never killed anyone, so what's your deal? And I start saying, well, it's not how bad your sin is. It's that you sinned, and you sinned against an infinite God. Therefore, your sin is of infinite, infinite terribleness, and you deserve infinite punishment. And the person's like, well, when do we get to the good news? Right. And what I've just done is I've taken some Christian ideas derived from systematic theology. I don't see in the Bible anywhere where it says, because you sinned against an infinite God, your sin, God, your sin is therefore infinite. Is that in the right. Bible somewhere? Not that I'm aware. I mean, it is that you sinned against God. There's no right. question. Right? That's in there. And that and that you're deserving of his wrath. Right. I mean, that, this kind of stuff is in scripture, but, but, but we systematize it and it cleans everything up and t- ties up all the loose ends. Um, and so, uh, and that's not necessarily bad. I'm not, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying sometimes it can get in the way. And then we start presenting that to the world, presenting it even to ourselves. And we don't understand what it means. Probably the best example is when you talk about God loving us, right? If you press anyone hard enough, maybe particularly men who are Christians, and ask them if they believe God loves them, their answer is yes. But then if you ask them, and we've brought this up, I think, countless times, if God likes them, and you and they're really being honest with you, their answer, you might find a lot of people don't think God likes them. Well, then what does love mean? Right? And the way we present, the way we present salvation, it's all nice and neat, and it cleans up all the loose ends, except it creates a whole bunch of new, new ones, is that God the Father can't stand you so he kills his son in your place who's a perfect sacrifice and now god doesn't have to look at you and he did this out of love for you and you're like wait so he's really angry at me enough that he wants to kill me and torture me for eternity so jesus i guess jumps in front of the bullet and now god looks at his son and doesn't have to see me therefore i'm allowed into the kingdom and you're like, that's a really weird view of salvation. And yet that's sort of what we teach. And it 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 fits in with kind of a law understanding of salvation. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying it is insufficient to the reality of the, of the case. It's insufficient to understand God's grace. And when we internalize that too much, it leads to a bunch of people who think God loves them, but can't stand them at the same time, which doesn't make any sense. I mean, well, it's he, part, part of the reason he can't stand you is because he loves you. Explain that. 
So, because so the 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 idea, as I've heard put forward, is that you know God loves you, but because you've sinned, He can't stand you, and because and and so He instead of looking upon you and and being disgusted, He has to do something to get rid of that disgust, and which is Jesus taking away well we say that Jesus takes away the this the grossness and disgusting element but then Jesus still has to stand there in front of us in a weird way in order for God to actually be okay with us which yeah. still well, leads to some problems obviously yeah i mean and this but this is see but the thing is that's not completely false that like gets to elements of the truth right Right, um, but it it doesn't even it doesn't even take into account all scripture. God calls us saints. Paul writes to us calling us saints. Right, um, Jesus says. I mean, Jesus talks about. He says, "You're my friends. Yes. You're my you know." And we're, we're referred to as co heirs, and we're we're in you know all this kind of stuff. It picks up on all these elements, but it it isn't quite enough. Right, it, it it just isn't enough. That that pre- presentation of salvation can be presented in just as ugly an uglier manner than I did, without ever really falling into heresy, without ever getting it wrong. They can you can present it in the ugliest terms possible, and you're like, well, that isn't wrong. That's what we sort of teach. We just have it like a different intonation, right? But the details are the same, and you're like, well. The issue is, and I'm not, I'm not ripping on this. I'm just saying we all know that this isn't sufficient to understand who God is and how God loves us. It's right. not enough, and and right. everybody should agree with that, right? Just if I I can understand, I mean, do I need to open First Corinthians thirteen? Right? You can have knowledge that goes, you know, you can understand everything, but it's not enough if you don't if you don't have love. And that's, I can understand scripture, I can systematize it, I can do all of this kind of stuff, but it matters. It doesn't matter at all if I'm not seeing the one who gave it. And if I'm not seeing the one who gave it, I can systematize it. I can form uh, four spiritual laws. I can draw you know, cliffs and a cross over it. I can do all of that kind of stuff. And I might be presenting the wrong God, even though I'm using some of the right words. Right. Now, I've talked about a variety of different things. Like what, in that short little bit, I'm talking about a, a couple of different things like interpretation, presentation, all this kind of stuff. But but the issue is we all understand words aren't sufficient. We all know that we need more than words. Not the song, though, because it's terrible. Great song. Despite what, <laughs> despite what Joel says. So this problem is people are going to be difficult difficult to get along with because they think they have a bunch of information, but they're not. that's not really the case. And or they think they, they think they have wisdom, but they don't actually have wisdom. And so wisdom, this is already shown here. Plato already agrees that wisdom isn't the, isn't having a bunch of facts and the ability to access a bunch of information, right? If Plato had, if Thamus, this mythical guy that Socrates is talking about, has seen Google, he probably just would have fell over dead from despair. <laughs> because Google is the greatest reminder of all the facts you could possibly want to get. All, well, not all of them, but a lot of facts far more than you could ever cover in your lifetime. Has it made us, has it made a, made us wise? Are we better people than we used to be? Are we hard to get along with? I don't know. We might even, I mean, people have always been hard to get along with, uh, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure access to a bunch of information has made us easier to get along with. It has given us a lot of benefits. Trust me. I love, I love access to all this information. Uh, uh, Some of it. Um, but the point is it makes so that we don't have to remember because we're too easily reminded and books already did this for us, especially mass printing had started doing this for us. Uh, but information technology now is way beyond any of that. Uh, and so how, how then let me try to kind of wrap this up with, maybe it won't be that conclusive and we may have to go into details of what this means. Um, well, then what, what do we do? What does it mean to actually, and this, uh, this is part of the problem with speeches, by the way, it's a collection of information that doesn't go to really anyone or anything. It doesn't have any particular, um, any particular audience. I mean, he talks about this. He says, he says for a, for a, 
a speech to be good, you have to know all the information precisely and you need to know precisely who you're talking to so you can speak it in such a way that the that the soul of the person can collect it in, in the right way. And the problem is if I'm writing the Bible or Plato is writing his dialogues, does he know the audience? Right? I mean, if I'm, you know, I don't know, let's say I'm the writer of, let's say I'm Paul. Well, he has an audience, right? The mm-hmm. churches he's writing to. Yeah. But what does that have to do with us? Right. And, and, yeah. and it's not, it's not merely that is, I mean, he wrote in Greek and he wrote to those specific people in those specific situations, but, uh, and I'm supposed to understand it in terms of that, but it's not written to me. It's not a letter to me. And right. does Paul know that, does Paul know the soul of the modern American? Probably not. Well, I, I mean, yeah, in a way he does. Right. Uh, even though he might be in despair at where we are now. Uh, what would Paul do if he came into one of our churches or watched one of our churches online? Since that's what we've been doing recently. Okay. Uh, hopefully it's over, but uh, the disease is over. Not well, whatever. Never mind. Okay. So <laughs> yeah, he says, first you have to know the truth concerning everything you're speaking or writing about. You have to define everything, so on and so forth, know how to divide it into its kinds and so on and so forth. Uh, second, you must understand the nature of the soul along the same lines. You must determine which kind of speech is appropriate to each kind of soul, prepare and arrange your speech accordingly, and offer a complex and elaborate speech to complex soul and simple speech to a simple one. Then and only only then will you be able to use speech artfully. Which is just, you can't do that if you're writing like a treatise, right? That's how everything's written nowadays. It's written to no one in right. particular. Well, right? let, let, let's be honest. If... I, you know, Travis and I are friends. We know each other pretty well. If I stand up and start lecturing to Travis, giving a speech to Travis and saying the things that I know are going to, you know, affect him in the right way and all that kind of stuff. At some point in that speech, before I finish it, he's probably going to be like, what are you talking about? Or, or why are you doing it this way? Because it seems to be missing the relational element that actually helps shape our views. Yeah. And so that, yeah, that's, 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 that's right. I mean, and you, you've been, I don't know if you've ever been talking with someone personally and they go into a speech. It's always the relationship. You always feel like, okay, what's ha- Why, you know, would you please shut up and let's actually have a conversation. Um, and so the, the point is that, is that, speeches, I mean, what Plato is basically saying is speeches don't work. But but Plato wrote speeches. I mean, particularly the writing of speeches doesn't work, but he wrote them. So how does Plato avoid this problem? Now, this is where it actually starts to get fun. Plato avoids this problem by writing dialogues, and the dialogues are meant to be plays that you are following along through. You should not simply read, if you read a Platonic dialogue, and it's a dialogue between Socrates and somebody else, which most of them are. And you're like, well, Socrates has the right answers because he's the good guy. So therefore, whatever Socrates thinks, I'm going to agree with. If you read Plato like that, you're going to, it's going to be really boring and you ain't going to learn jack, right? You'll you're going you're to learn some of the wrong conclusions. Yeah, you will actually read him incorrectly. And this is how a lot of people, re- well, actually, they have, they have it's a little more complex the way modern scholars read him wrongly, but they still read him wrongly. But uh, most of them, there's some good ones out there. But you're not gonna you're not gonna learn anything meaningful, and you're gonna find that Plato is really boring and uninteresting, right? That was Nietzsche's conclusion. Plato was boring. Um, uh, so, but what are you supposed to do when you read a dialogue? Well, what do you do when you when you read? Because Plato was could, was going to be a writer of plays. This is how the story goes. He's he was writing a bunch of plays, and he met Socrates, and he burned all his plays. He's going to be a tragic playwright. Oh, what do you do when you watch it? When you watch a movie? And it presents, and it presents different characters, right? You might even look at the good guy, right? Let's let's talk about something simple like Avengers, right? Uh, like the where we're getting to the last ones, where you're looking at Thanos and you're looking at the Avengers. It actually presents Thanos in a way that tries to rationalize and understand his point of view, so that you can identify with it to some extent mm-hmm. and still see him as the bad guy. Right. right, and it shows all the all the failures and the foibles and the confusion and even the even the the selfishness and stupidity of the good guys. Why does it do that? Because it doesn't want to just make this a simple good guy, bad guy thing. It's calling you into this complexity and 
and movement back and forth. Something as simple as the simple as the Avengers does that, right? And a lot of stories do that. They try to they try to show you that life is richer and more complex than you think. And that may be confusing in some ways because sometimes you just want a good guy and a bad guy, or a good girl and a bad girl. Anyway, that sounds like a different sort of movie you're watching. But uh, but you know, you, sometimes you just want you just want everything to be clear, right? The clear good, the clear good people and the clear bad people. But life isn't really that way, right? And we understand life isn't really that way. But the same thing when you read Plato's dialogues. If you read, say, The Republic and you're like, well, Socrates has the right view of justice, so everyone else is wrong and I'm just going to look how they're wrong, then you're not going to you're not going to gain much from it. Because the, the thing is, Thrasymachus, who has a very cynical view of justice, is actually what most of us think most of the time. What is justice? Well, justice is the are the rules that are put into place to keep those in power in power. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, I would dare say most of you think that that's, that's even God's justice is the justice that merely guarantees that God's, that God gets his will done. Right? Well, that's Thrasymachus' view. It's just that God has the biggest guns in the biggest guns, period. He keeps the power, powerful in power and gets them to get what they want. Well, you agree with Thrasymachus. And you shouldn't be looking at Socrates as your hero because Socrates disagrees with that view. Now, I disagree with that view. I don't think that's what justice is. I don't think that's how it works. Because that, that throws you, by the way, if you hold that view, that throws you into the Euthyphro dilemma, which creates other problems because Thrasymachus and Euthyphro were both sophists. And sophistry leads to the Euthyphro dilemma. Christianity does not lead to the Euthyphro dilemma. But that's, that's a different podcast. Probably a, a soon forthcoming one. Yeah, yeah, perhaps, probably, probably. Um, so, uh, the Euthyphro dilemma is used against Christianity and other religious, other theistic views uh, a decent amount, but it doesn't apply to Christianity because, I mean, Plato already showed how to solve that problem actually in the Euthyphro, but nobody sees it. So, except me. <laughs> so, um, there may could be a little confirmation bias going on there. The, the, the real question, is, like when you read it, you should be wrestling with the different positions because we realize I agree with I agree with Polemicus. I agree with Thrasymachus. I agree with Glaucon, who says that people are only good, not because or not, they're, they're just merely for the benefits of justice, not because they love justice, not because justice makes them happy itself, but because the things that justice gets you makes you happy. And I'm like, eh, yeah, I can see that. I mean, I. Why do we why do we serve Jesus? Is it because we love serving Jesus, or is it because we want, you know, what we get after we die? What if you could do whatever you want and still go to heaven? Would you do whatever you want? What if you do whatever you want and there would be no social condemnation, no condemnation in the church? People would happily let you do it. In fact, you'd be praised as a good person, even though you're doing horrible things, and you'd get to go to heaven. What would you do? Well, I think most of us would probably change for the worst, right? Because we don't believe that being good makes us happy. We believe that being good is a means to get something that would make us happy. There's a serious distinction. There's a significant distinction between those two views. But anyway, that's 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 what Glaucon and Adamantus throw, throw at Socrates. And they're, they're bringing up all this kind of stuff. And if you don't wrestle with that, if you don't realize how much you agree with Glaucon, then when Socrates starts to respond, it doesn't mean anything. You're like, well, Socrates has the right answer. I need to boil out all these other questions and just boil it down to the right answers. And this is what we do with scripture a lot. You have to go through a passage. You don't wrestle through the passage. You boil it down to the right. Where are the, where are the right answers? Where's the application? Oh, I'm not supposed to steal or kill people or whatever. Okay, good. Because I didn't know that, right? And so... um, what Plato's is what Plato's trying to present to us in the presentation of dialogues is an attempt to overcome the problem of speeches, overcome a speech that simply reminds you of information. But rather, he says, the one who really teaches this will will present a discourse that enters the soul of the other person and grows into more discourse. That's where wisdom is. Wisdom is in the development of discourse within yourself. That's Plato. Well, what is it? How does this relate to scripture? 
Scripture is not merely an attempt to get you to answer, to find out whether Calvinism or Arminianism is true. It's not to be boiled down to four spiritual laws on how to get to heaven. If you're starting Scripture off with the question, if I died tonight, where would I end up? You, you might be reading it. You might be looking for the wrong thing because the goal isn't to get out of hell and get to heaven. The goal is to be with the one who is heaven. We're, we're starting to get a little long. And this might be a good point to wrap up what we've been saying and set up what we're going to do in the next episode. Um, obviously, this is going to be two episodes. This probably could actually be three or four episodes if we let it. Um, what we've what we've been trying to do is to look at communication and writing and um, from Plato's, per, you know, what Plato's talking about. And does writing help us become better people? Does, um, do speeches help us? Um, how, what role does information play in wisdom? And this applies not just to that, but we're, we're looking to apply it to the Bible. How, what role does information play in how we are to understand the Bible? We can have lots of information about the Bible. We can know all of the facts, historical facts of the Bible. We can know what the Bible says. But is that something that's actually making us better people? Is that something that's drawing us to be more like Christ and drawing us in a deeper relationship with Christ? Or is it something that we we use to make ourselves feel like we've got what we need when we need it and we can draw on it when we want to draw on it. Um, is our, is this information changing our lives or is it just making us lazy in our, in, in our spiritual development? Yeah. It's, and, and that, you know, the, the, the statement that, that B-I-B-L-E stands for basic instructions before leaving earth, which I know is just, it's sort of a tongue in cheek thing. But it, it, that builds upon a kind of error that, that the Bible serves and that this information serves as a set of instructions for you to get into a particular place as opposed to something that draws you to become a different kind of person. Not to do different things, even though that naturally arises out of becoming a different person, um, but draws you into becoming a different kind of person, part of the people of God, part of a, a bearer of the kingdom. Not one who knows how to do the say the magic words and maybe grunt hard while you're doing it so it feels real so that you get into the kingdom, but you are the kingdom. You are carrying the kingdom upon your shoulders, which feels an awful lot like a cross from what Jesus says. Right. That's what scripture is trying to do for us. And and so what we're gonna do in the next episode is we're gonna look more at Plato's um, attempt to to show us not not to give us the information, but to show us how the information can change our lives. How the information is is a is a tool for us to um, to grow and develop. And um, if we if we see the information the right way, if we see the text the right way. Um, and so the goal is going to be not so much to, can we know more information about it, but how should we read the text? Not what do we need to read in the text, but how do we read the text? And then we're going to look at what does that mean for the Bible? I mean, because, you know, as I talked about at the beginning, there's so many different approaches as tools that we can use or, or, you know, what does it mean for me? Or, you know, all, all those kinds of things. Those aren't, don't, aren't necessarily bad, but if we aren't using them to understand how we are to read the Bible, how the Bible is to help shape us and not just saying that as a platitude, but what does it mean for the Bi for engaging the Bible to change our lives? Um, that's what we're going to try and wrap up for you next week and how well it's going to actually wrap up 
and how much of it's going you're going to feel like you didn't give us answers and we probably don't won't give you answers because answers aren't the solution the 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 goal our goal is to help show to help give a picture to help you help your evaluative outlook we, i mean we haven't used that term the whole episode but that's been been right there the whole time how your evaluative outlook can be transformed by engaging with scripture. Yeah. And I think we will give some borderline practical elements, but if you really want the good practical elements, go read a hermeneutics text. That's not us. We're philosophers. We're not biblical hermeneuticists. That has nudist in it somewhere. So I don't want to be that anyway, but, uh, um, but yeah, so, but I think, I think some of the stuff we give, I think is going to be pretty interesting and it does have some sort of practical application, at least in the way that you look at scripture and the way you approach it. But it is a little more of a show than a, than a say, which is a really good way to say it. But for today, thanks for listening. I'm Travis. I'm Joel. Have a great day.